This is the Frog for Life podcast. I'm your host, Rob Berline. You know, the school was terrific. People were terrific. Uh, we had a horse family program through TCU. Um, we're still in touch with our horse family. And they were just wonderful people in terms of inviting us into their house, you know, teaching us a little bit about American culture. Um, the faculty was terrific. That is the voice of Trip Tripathi, a former chairman of the Neely School Board of Advisors. Trip will talk about his experience as a graduate student at TCU, which brought him from India to the United States for the first time, as well as professional career as a business advisor in which he oversees companies and how to deal with the coronavirus economic fallout. We are so honored today to be joined by Trip Tripathi. Trip is a CEO of the business advisory practice with Kaufman Rawson. He uh, recently started that venture in September. He is also a past chair of the Neely Board of Visitors. So he brings a lot of experience to the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Trip. Good morning, Rob. It's my great pleasure to be here and thank you for asking me. Well, you chose TCU as a grad student, so you had a bit of an educational journey and prior life experience prior to coming to TCU. So walk us through some of your life's journey prior to choosing TCU as a grad student. Uh, sure. So I, I grew up in India, a long way away from here, of course. Uh, and uh, my parents, my dad was a pilot, mom was a nurse, and they had a very big focus on getting a great education. So I did my undergrad uh, in business uh, in India, and then I did the chartered accountancy, which is like the CPA. Uh, I worked in India for all of two years, and along the way, I met my wife. Uh, we got married, and uh, you know that led up to a decision to go to grad school together. And so how do you decide to go from India over to the United States and then also uh, a, a little town called Fort Worth, Texas at the time? So quite, quite a journey, I know, but uh, it was a good one because, you know, I did a lot of research. I had two or three friends who'd actually been to TCU. So I knew a bit more about TCU perhaps than an average foreign student who's trying to come across. Uh, first-hand experiences, you know, great faculty, good reputation, uh, and, uh, you know, it's Fort Worth, but Fort Worth and Dallas was booming at the time, right? So it seemed like a good place to come and, you know, uh, go through school, and uh, that's what led to that decision. <laughs> and how many uh, times had you previously been to the United States prior to uh, coming to TCU? <laughs> I had never stepped out of India before I left to come to the United States and TCU. So it was an adventure, quite an adventure. So tell us about that culture shock, uh, just coming to the United States in general before we even get into the education component. Sure. You know, the good news is the, the United States uh, then and now is so well perceived by Indians that I had a lot of exposure to the culture in the sense of watching movies, uh, listening to music and all that good stuff. And uh, and of course, you know, the United States has always been, you know, the beacon for, for the world. And, and, and so uh, having said all of that, it didn't really prepare me for uh, coming to the U.S. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, hard in the sense of I've spoken, I always spoke English, so that wasn't an issue. But just the fact of coming to a new country, 
uh, trying to make connections, trying to make friends, trying to learn how things worked. Uh, that, that was hard at the beginning, but I had my wife with me and that, that made it so much easier because it was a, a shared journey. It's always been a shared journey. As you look back on those first few uh, months in the U.S., is there any particular memories that kind of stick out to you that, you know, what are that, uh, the old, yes. old saying, you know, I don't think we're at home anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we came here as very poor grad students, okay? So uh, let's keep that in mind. So I didn't have a car. Uh, I, I, I didn't go, uh, you know, out with the guys drinking beer on Friday night. None of that happened. I just didn't have the money. So as a result, we uh, relied on each other a great deal. And the good news was, uh, you know, the school was terrific. People were terrific. Uh, we had a host family program through TCU. Um, we're still in touch with our host family. And they were just wonderful people in terms of inviting us into their house, you know, teaching us a little bit about American culture. Um, the faculty was terrific. I took to studies like, you know, fish takes to water. I did very well in school. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I think the, the dean and the assistant dean were really, really supportive and helpful. Good news was, you know, on the back of some outstanding grades, uh, I had an assistantship, you know, a semester in, and at least that paid for the roof over the head and some food on the table. So it was a good journey. I loved it. It was great. It was tough, but I loved it. And so as you get into the academics of why you chose TCU, what really stuck out about the academic part of it? You know, the thing that was really a draw was it, it's a smaller school, right? And what that meant for me was personalized attention. You know, smaller classes, uh, you know, the classes, I undergrad classes I went to in India had, you know, 200 people in the room, okay? Uh, and to suddenly go from that to a class with 20 people, maybe 25, uh, high quality uh, teaching, uh, you know, engaging uh, discussions and subjects. Uh, to me, that was a real plus at TCU. Plus, it's like a family culture, you know. Uh, it, because it's small, everyone knows each other. Uh, you know the faculty, you know the dean. Uh, you have access to a great location, Fort Worth and then Dallas next door. Uh, and uh, so overall, I think I made the right pick. And I think being a smaller city is good because it allowed me to focus on studying. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a grad student, obviously the hours are a little bit different. It's not quite like being an undergrad, but would you say it was an enriching um, experience outside of the classroom? No, no question. You know, I'm, we made a lot of friends, okay? Uh, mostly from campus and uh, and some of them are still friends. You know, uh, one great example, by the way, is Peggy Conway, who's actually at TCU. She was in, in the class, in the same class as me, okay? Uh, so we, we developed some good friendships during that time. You know, people from all parts of the United States uh, and internationally, uh, and those friendships, some of them, as I mentioned, have endured. And I would say that's the, that was the most enriching part, okay? Besides, you know, living in America, a country that, you know, I've all, I always looked up to and admired. Uh, and I was very, we were very happy to be a part of it. So, uh, so it was a good time. It was a good time. And, and once you leave TCU, you have to uh, become a professional as, as that's why you went to grad school. Uh, yes. So walk us through your uh, professional journey. I know you've had uh, a lot of great roles. 
So, so the journey really started uh, in Dallas, you know, uh, maybe a semester before I completed the program. I actually had to accelerate the program because I got a job, <laughs> but, uh, and I had to graduate quickly. So I went to summer school and wrapped it up. Uh, my first job was Price Waterhouse. Okay? Uh, great firm, love them. Great reputation, great business. And I joined their consulting practice. Uh, and at that time, unfortunately, Texas was going through multiple issues, real estate, oil and gas bankruptcies and stuff like that. So the group I joined was actually called, uh, you know, business reorganizations and litigation services. And it was just perfect for me because I was able to bring my knowledge that I'd gained at school strategy, uh, plus my prior knowledge uh, with uh, accounting uh, to do things like financial modeling, recovery plans, uh, new strategies. And it was a very intense job because, you know, because businesses were falling apart left and right. So I did that for three years. You know, I was promoted a couple of times during that short three-year period. Uh, and I eventually became a manager uh, in the consulting practice. And uh, it, it was a, a wonderful experience. Great introduction. Um, and Rob, I assume you'd like me to just continue. Yep, just keep on going. Career. So three years in, uh, I got recruited by PepsiCo, right? Uh, and I joined uh, a new division at the time, Frito-Lay International. It was based in Dallas. So I joined them as uh, assistant controller. I wanted to get some heavy duty accounting under the belt. And I com completed my CPA at the same time. Um, so uh, I, I did that first job for a couple of years. It, was, it suddenly became all about business development because the division was growing so quickly. Uh, I eventually uh, spent 12 years at PepsiCo in five different jobs. That was the first one in Dallas. And then I went overseas as CFO for Frito-Lay in Egypt. Okay, So I spent three years in Cairo, Egypt. Wonderful experience. Uh, moved on back to New York as uh, uh, head of planning for Asia Pacific. Uh, and then I jumped across to a sister division, Pepsi-Cola. Uh, and I worked on about half of Pepsi-Cola, again, business planning strategy, and then wrapped up the Pepsi-Co career at, uh, in New York in corporate strategy, Pepsi-Co corporate strategy. Wonderful 12 years. I loved Pepsi-Co. I learned so much uh, working at that firm. Uh, and I had a great boss who became the CEO of Pepsi-Co eventually. Uh, and, and I've kept that connection live as well. Uh, I left because I was just tired of traveling. You know, it was 12 years of hitting the road and that too internationally. And it was just very hard after a while. So I got recruited to limited brands, okay, which was a completely different industry because of course I would never join Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I moved across to limited brands and I had a very challenging first assignment there as CFO for The Limited which was the original uh, retail uh, brand for limited brands. Uh, and I worked on a big business turnaround, which was spectacular. And I learned a lot about specialty retailing. I then got recruited to Macy's and I spent five years in Miami, which is home now, uh, as president of uh, Macy's Florida. That was a big step up because I went from being a finance guy, although with some very broad finance experience into being a leader, okay? 11,000 people, you know, 60 department stores, $2 billion business. It was very, very big and complex. 
Uh, but I loved it. I loved the interaction of the people and uh, making the business successful. Anyway, uh, I then went to TJX Companies, which is an off-price retailer, owner of TJ Maxx, Marshalls, et cetera, as corporate CFO, okay? Did that for two years. I have to say, I, I didn't enjoy living in the Boston area. Uh, led to us moving back to Miami for a year. And then I got, got recruited to my last employer prior to Kaufman Rosson, of course. I spent eight years with an international company that owns Godiva Chocolates, United Biscuits, etc. Um, so my first job was in Istanbul, Turkey, of all places. I spent three and a half years there as a chief strategy officer for the group, which was about $11 billion of food and beverages group. Uh, from there, I came back to the United States as CEO for the new America's business. Uh, so I did that for a while. And then uh, I moved back to Miami and continued with them. Uh, somehow they just won't let me leave. <laughs> so, so the last job, I was working on all kinds of projects. I spent a year in London. I spent uh, three months in India. Uh, I helped them set up a brand licensing business. And then I thought I'd retired. End of 2018, I, I sort of hung up the pen and <laughs> said, okay, enough already. Uh, moved to Miami, um, enjoyed it for about six months, and then I started getting bored. So I, I started working with uh, a couple of company CEOs uh, on helping them improve their businesses. And uh, it eventually led to joining this firm, Kaufman Rossen, which is a wonderful uh, smaller CPA firm, CPA advisory firm, based in Miami, but with a national and international practice. So I've been there all of two months and I'm helping them uh, jumpstart a new practice, uh, which is a CEO board and shareholder business advisory practice. So I hope I haven't bored you with that long story, but uh, that's the career. <laughs> so I took a couple of, uh, of, of, uh, of notes on that. The first is that there's a free to away division in Cairo, Egypt. <laughs> that that's something that I don't think a lot of people, um, you know, as you're picking out your Fritos at the sandwich shop uh, are thinking about. Um, and then I think your passport uh, may be on the uh, top 10 list of most used. Uh, I think I've been through probably 10 passport books in the course of my career. <laughs> well, and hopefully one day we'll be able to get back to that uh, international travel again here. Yeah, I look forward to it because even in my current role, I'm seeing opportunities in several places. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can do only so much on the computer and phone. You, you need to be there, mm -hmm. right? Well, I want to talk a little bit about your current role. As you said, you've been there for, for two months. Why would, I think a lot of people would question, why is in the middle of a pandemic, um, an economic uh, kind of turbulency, a good time to start a new role? Great question, great question. So you have to start with why in the middle of a pandemic would they hire me, right, <laughs> uh, to do this? So I think it was a combination of things. Number one, for me, you know, I could have waited out the pandemic, I guess. But it's such a time of turbulent change that you can't sit things out. You have to get into whatever's going on. Uh, from Kaufman Rossen's perspective, it was an opportunity to hire an executive with my background, okay? Uh, and bring me into the practice, you know, as a partner. Uh, and uh, so they took a chance. I took a chance because I could have said, I'm, I don't need to do this. I'm gonna just wait it out till times are better. 
or I'm going to go find a CEO role somewhere else, right? Uh, but I think it was a combination of things. Uh, what I found after joining Kaufman Rawson is they thought the business would drop off the cliff, but it didn't. In fact, not only has it maintained uh, the same levels as last year, but it's on track to beat last year in terms of business because people need help even during a time like this. So whether it was helping people with the PPP program or I'm currently working on a business turnaround, which pulls on my experience and background, or any number of things. What I've found is the firm has figured out with its clients how to work online, okay? So all of my meetings and calls are on either Zoom or Microsoft Teams. Uh, we share documents and do work remotely. Um, and the good thing was Kaufman Rossen started this three years ago, actually, okay? this whole shift to online. So when the pandemic hit, it was an easy move. The other thing you should know is even during the pandemic, businesses are buying and selling other businesses, okay? And that creates work for us too, okay? And the last thing I would say is this is global. You know, I'm talking to people in Istanbul, okay, uh, for business. I'm working on a, a company right now in Colombia, right? Uh, not to speak of local businesses and U.S. businesses, of course. So life hasn't stopped. Business life hasn't stopped during this time. Yeah. And in this role, as a business advisor, uh, we all hear about the the ups and downs and, and layoffs and things like that. What did what would you say are the biggest challenges you've seen organizations um, face uh, from the pandemic, aside from just increased expenses and decreased revenue? Yeah, you know, there's no question this is a terrible time, right, for everybody. And we're all trying to adapt somehow. That story is no different for a company, right? Terrible time. Uh, the world has uh, turned upside down. And for many businesses, has turned upside down in a very negative way, right? Uh, for some, uh, it has uh, allowed their businesses to grow, you know. So if you worked at Walmart or Target, their businesses have been exploding because people are doing home shopping now, right? And delivery on Amazon, for example. So it is a turbulent time, right? Uh, but smart companies are doing things now, right? They're not waiting for things to, uh, to turn. So number one, reimagining the business model, right? Uh, is a big one. Number two is still at a time like this, hiring the right talent, okay? I actually don't hear of companies laying off thousands and thousands of people. Yes, there are some that are doing that because their business model is just not sustainable anymore. But in general, what I'm hearing as I move around is, yeah, we're adapting to a new way of working. We're developing new products. We are making, doing some selective hiring of new people to bring into the business because life has to go on. We know this thing is going to be over someday. And we are planning for the future, okay? And so a lot of what I'm gonna be doing is helping companies plan for the future. What are you gonna do when you come out of this, okay? You gotta think about that now, not that it's over, okay? Because that is too late. So I think life is going on, but there's no question people are feeling the pressure. And so the other thing that becomes really important at a time like this is making sure the culture of the company continues to be strong, that people feel connected, uh, want to be connected, uh, and the company has to lead that effort, making sure people are connected, making sure 
they're checking on people, uh, making sure people are still motivated and inspired and are doing you know, good work and see opportunity ahead and an end ahead. That's a company role. And how would you see, uh, we've heard a lot lately in the last couple of months about the, I guess the Zoom fatigue, computer burnout, where, as you said, since we can't be in public, all of these, including the way you and I are meeting today is over the computer. What is the advice you've given companies about how to try to get over that hump? Because unfortunately, there's really not a, a way around that right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really unfortunate. And it's definitely one of the downsides of working at a time like this. There are upsides. So let me just quickly hit on the upsides, right? Number one, hopefully most people see it as an upside that they're working from home right? In the comfort of their own environment. Uh, there are downsides to that too, because, you know, you, 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 you probably have to balance homework and work work at the same time. Uh, you are cooped up at home. That is an issue. On the other hand, I think most people are enjoying the fact of uh, being able to work from the comfort of their homes. And that may continue, you know, down the road. At the same time, you know, the number, the sheer number of interactions and meetings that are happening on Zoom, Microsoft Teams, et cetera, are draining, okay? Because you're, unlike a meeting or working in an office, in an office, you do have opportunities to get up and move around and do stuff and, you know, meet your colleagues at the equivalent of the water cooler, right? Well, that's all gone, right? Um, and it's been replaced by these meetings where you have 10 people or 20 people on a screen and you're all just staring at each other, right? And that leads to Zoom burn, right? Uh, so we have to find ways of managing that. I think, again, from a, if you're a boss or a company, I think minimizing the sheer number of meetings is an important thing to do. Allowing more time for people to do real work, okay? Uh, so at this, that's number one. The second thing is, I think business, uh, these meetings have to be a little more personalized, okay? as I discovered. So start a meeting with you know, a few minutes of light discussion. Hey, what's going on? What do you do? What do you have for dinner last night? Oh, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. What are you going to be cooking? Call it an icebreaker, but it relaxes people. And that's important. Okay? And then I think keeping these meetings minimize to what's really necessary because some of them can just drag on and on and on, right? Uh, and, and, and that's important because otherwise that's what leads to Zoom burn and people feeling pressured. Uh, thirdly, I think encouraging people in between to get up and go, go take a walk, right? Get up, take a break, okay? Go make yourself a cup of coffee, step out if you can, take a break, take as many breaks as you can. Uh, because what I'm finding is that I'm working a lot more than I ever did before, okay? <laughs> Simply because, you know, you, you're concentrated on this little screen and you're doing stuff on it all, all day. Um, and some days my day starts at 6.30. I have nothing else to do. So I get up early and boom, I'm logged in and I'm doing something. <laughs> uh, so I think we've all got to learn to balance productivity and engagement with some balance. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, on the personal side, very important. Mm -hmm. And you, as you went through your career, uh, a, a big, uh, a big theme was turnaround. And you said it was even back when you first started, when uh, Texas was having economic um, flux in the in the late '80s. Um, and then I think a lot of people are comparing this time to the recession we saw in 2008. 
Um, how would you say this time compares with the most recent time of 2008 in terms of economic upheaval? Yes. So I would say 2008 was a financial driven crisis, right? And it was devastating, of course. It took years to recover, okay? Uh, this is not a financial driven uh, 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 recession, if you would, okay? Uh, but it's something, of course, completely unprecedented, right? So I, I think, and we are seeing a high rate of businesses going bankrupt, a high rate of businesses struggling to find their feet, but you're also finding a high rate of businesses figuring it out, okay? Figuring out two things. How do I get through the next few months from a cash standpoint so that my business is still in place? How do I reposition myself moving forward, okay? The good thing is demand has not dried up, okay? There is demand. If you look at retail sales, it, 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 it did fall off a cliff for a short while and it rebounded. The, the difference is it shifted from discretionary items to items that were really needed, like food and, you know, mm -hmm. all kinds of other stuff. So, so retail has shifted, retail sales have shifted. So it's unlike the last recession, I believe, okay? And I believe there is an end in sight. There will be an end in sight. Now I'm a turnaround, I've had a lot of turnaround experiences, but I would call myself a growth driven turnaround person, okay? And what that means is even in adversity, okay? Uh, there is opportunity, okay? And the answer isn't to just lay off a bunch of people and cut your expenses. Yes, we have to all cut expenses, whether it's personal or business uh, during a bad period, okay? So we should be doing that anyway. But the answer isn't just laying off 90% of your workforce. That's short-sighted, I believe, okay? So the answer is twofold, as I said. Number one, figure out how to get through these few months from a cash standpoint and figure out at the same time what you're gonna be doing after this. So it is a different time from the 2008, nine, uh, period. And I think there's more opportunity now than before. That's and, my view anyway. And in 2008 and 2009, I, I think a lot of people were, 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 were saying about companies about the importance of keeping cash in reserve. And then, you know, this happens. And so some people would think, well, didn't they learn their lessons from 12 years ago? Is this... Uh, with you, with this being driven differently, do you think you've seen more that just circumstances of it was unavoidable, yeah. or do you think that some, yes. you know, certain things? Yeah. So, so one of the big drivers of rising stock prices in the last decade has been uh, has been stock buybacks. Okay, it's also been dividend payouts, right? And what that has served to do is uh, strip companies of the cash resources that I think they need to get through times like this, right? Uh, also, you know, I've never been, listen, I'm, I'm an investor in the market. I like stock buybacks. It raises the, the price of the stock. On the other hand, I think it creates an issue for a company uh, if they need cash. So I would like to see coming out of this period, uh, whether as an investor or as an advisor, okay? I would tell companies, listen, you, you need to make sure you've got access to cash, okay? And what that may mean is instead of paying out cash flow in the form of uh, stock buybacks, right? Reduce that, pay down some debt, you know, keep, keep the field clear so that if there's an issue 
you're able to either go out and borrow on your credit lines, right? Uh, or you're able to own assets that you can liquidate quickly, okay? Because once you pay a dividend or do a stock buyback, it's gone, okay? You don't have access to that cash. So once again, I think it's a balance. You do have to pay out dividends. Investors expect that in certain companies. You do have to do stock buybacks because it's one of the pillars of keeping stock prices growing. But do you really have to do that much? Okay. And I think that's where in the last decade, companies have gone kind of overboard, Okay, uh, the stock buyback area. So I think there needs to be a writing of the ship, if you would, a little bit. And, you know, listen, I, I've been a top level executive many years, but I would also say, hey, maybe maybe it's time to look at top level compensation a little bit as well. Okay, <laughs> performance incentives and so on. Mm -hmm. How do you pay out performance incentives to top management? Can we really make it more performance driven? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this has been very knowledgeable about the, um, your professional career, but I want, I want to go into a little bit about your, your volunteer work. Um, you've been a board member and past chair of the Neely School Board of Advisors. Talk about your time um, as an advisor with, that, with the program. Um, what are some things that you've seen uh, Neely accomplish since you've been a, a member of the board? So I, I, was re I first joined uh, the Neely board uh, as a board member, right? the Neely Advisory Board. And uh, I, I would say that first period was maybe a couple of years, year and a half, couple of years. Uh, and it was at the request uh, of the Dean at the time. Uh, and um, uh, I was honored, of course, being a, 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 a this being my alma mater, uh, it was such a, and, and since I have such positive feelings about TCU and what it did for me and my career and gave me a start in my new life here, um, I, I wanted to find a way to give back beyond just writing a check, right? So this was a great way to engage because it pulled on my professional background to, to at least try to help the school in some way. So I would say the first year, year and a half was the first assignment as a board member. I really enjoyed that. It helped me uh, uh, get to know probably 30 other people. It helped me understand what some of the priorities of the school were uh, and to try to contribute to that too. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what the board does uh, very quickly. But then to my great surprise, uh, I was asked to be the chair of the board uh, because I was great surprise, but I was like, are you kidding me? Okay, I used to be a student here, but that was precisely the point, right? To have somebody in the chair role who loves the school, uh, you know, has benefited from being at the school and understands uh, how it operates. So I did a two year term uh, leading the board uh, and then now uh, I've completed my term and I'm, I'm back to being a board member. I wanted to continue, okay? So here's, here's what the board does. First of all, it provides advice to the dean, okay? Uh, about uh, school activities uh, and the future. So for example, we engage with the dean on developing a strategic plan for the school, okay? Uh, so you have, as a result of that, the dean gets the benefit of 20 or 30 business people's uh, and, and uh, you know, we have people with other backgrounds too, uh, but you get the input from 30 people uh, in a consolidated way as to where the school should go. That's number one. Secondly, this is a group of people who are always on call and always available if the school needs them for various things, such as speaking to a class, uh, such as mentoring a student, 
such as uh, looking for a job opportunity for a student in need, for example, and also writing checks when needed, right? So it's, it's a variety of things. It's not just one. The board is going to do what the school ex expects. And I would say the dean and the school are going to pull on the board to the extent that the board is willing to step up and do things. So I think it's a good combination. We've been involved in the recruitment of the dean as well, for example. Um, I have worked pretty closely with uh, Dean uh, Daniel Pullen, of course, a terrific uh, person. Uh, and Homer Erickson before that, uh, two really wonderful people. Uh, it's such, uh, such a plus looking at the new building uh, and uh, we've been kept up to date on everything that's going on there. So I would say it's been a re very rewarding three or four years on the Neely Board of Advisors and uh, I expect that to continue. And Neely has gone, uh, has kept shooting up the rankings in the, by the different uh, review magazines and things like that. EMBA is is number one in Texas. Um, what are the things you guys talk about on the board um, as far as best ways to improve those rankings and, and ways you think Neely can still uh, keep growing higher? Yeah. So, um, so of course, there are a number of bright spots uh, on the Neely horizon. Okay. Uh, but but the, the ways that we've sort of contributed to uh, helping improve that is providing advice on how to uh, broaden uh, the student base. Okay. Um, you know, diversity, as you know, is a, is a big thing in many, many different uh, campuses. Uh, broadening our student uh, base from a diversity standpoint, I think is very important. Um, I think secondly, we do have a terrific faculty already at TCU. Uh, and I think just ensuring the continuance of the high level of uh, talent uh, that the university and the school has been able to bring in. Okay, um, providing input and advice on new programs that are being rolled out. Uh, we discuss rankings every time. Okay, of course we're all competitive, right? Uh, and but we think we have a great school, and it, I think it is being reflected in in the improved standing of TCU and its MBA program, all its components. You know, over the last several years. I mean, this is all important because it helps attract students, right? It helps attract top quality uh, faculty, right? Uh, we're not a research-driven school, but we have several faculty members, you know, who've done great research uh, and continue to. And all of this is intended to enhance the reputation of the school. Okay, so you know, look, it's it's no surprise universities across the United States right now are facing issues, right? Uh, Pandemic-driven, student enrollment-driven, etc. So we're all sort of fighting for market share to a degree. So the more we can do to make sure we're enhancing the reputation and standing of the school, I'd say that's a really important focus. And one of the ways uh, that Neely kind of transitioned during this period was they launched a, in rather quick order, a Master of Science and Business Analytics program, a one-year program geared towards some of the younger graduates who may, um, yeah. you know, may job opportunities fell through and they needed kind of a place to, you know, stay afloat uh, for a better term. Um, what was kind of, were you involved in any of the planning behind that program or, or why was, why that program come, come along well, so I, I was not involved in the planning, but I can tell you some of the rationale for that. You know, data analytics is a hot, hot field, okay? 
And I wish it had been offered in my days because I, I would have taken it, all right? I would have done it as an evening program or something. It's, it's a terrific area because, you know, what is happening now with the advent of not just computers, but the utilization of technology across every facet of the business is that huge amounts of data are being generated and collected. And what many companies have realized is that's a real resource because if you have the ability to analyze that data, it can tell you a lot of stuff. So the obvious is, of course, consumer buying data, for example, okay? Let's say you're a retail business, you've got you know, a thousand stores. Well, you've got data coming in every day about shopping habits, about pricing, about you know, cons consumer comments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Finding a way to package all of that raw data into something that's meaningful on a quick and timely basis so that management and, and, and the team can make decisions quickly about what to do, I think is critical, okay? Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that's about big data, all right? As they, as they call it. Uh, so data analytics to me just means, hey, you've got a vast amount of data floating out there. How can you harness that to create some real business driving information? Okay. Uh, and I think that's the value of that program. The other thing is it's not just for business students. Okay. Anybody can learn data analytics, right? Uh, and can apply it in their field. Okay. Uh, because it has multiple applications. It has applications in the field of, tech, of education, for example. Uh, it has certainly all kinds of businesses. Uh, it has application in uh, you know, governmental situations. So it's a great program, and I think it's a real value add. Uh, and and uh, I, I, it's, it's already taken off pretty well. Uh, and I would highly recommend it, even if you have an MBA and, and you're you know, seeking to enhance your background, it's, it's a great program to do. I, I think I'm a little too old to sign up for it now, so. <laughs> oh, but I would have. <laughs> well, I think you wrote the book on, uh, on data analytics in terms of how you turn around the businesses. So uh, maybe they'll ask you to teach a course. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I, wanna, I wanna wrap up with, you talked about all the great places you've lived. Um, so if you had to go, you know, thinking back from India to Istanbul to Miami, what's been the most, uh, your favorite place to live? So uh, I've lived and traveled around the world. So I've, I've been to, uh, on business to all of Asia, you know, uh, Africa, parts of Africa, parts of South America, all of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And I've actually lived in, uh, besides India, uh, Turkey, Istanbul, Cairo, uh, London, I lived in London for a year and uh, Miami have lived in several, uh, sorry, in, in the United States, I've lived in several cities as well. I, I think the fact that I'm in Miami says it's home, right? And it is home, but no place is perfect. So I think outside of Miami, I would choose London, right? I loved the experience, hated the weather, okay? <laughs> but I love the experience because it's a wonderful world-class city there's so much going on. They have food from all over the world. They have people from all over the world there. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful place. So I hope they find their financial feet in the UK <laughs> uh, because I'd love to visit again and you know, maybe spend some time there. Uh, besides that, Asia has some wonderful spots. Okay? Uh, so everyone knows Bali, of course, but it's not a business center really. 
Singapore is an incredible city, okay, city-state. Uh, but uh, for me personally, it's all just so far away. <laughs> so London is an overnight uh, flight, and I hope to resume that someday. And when did, uh, when's the last time you were able to, to, to come join, uh, join us in Fort Worth? Well, I was there, interestingly, just before the pandemic hit, okay? Uh, so I actually came in for, uh, for a meeting and then uh, I was in uh, Dallas uh, because, uh, and Fort Worth, I was in Dallas because my wife has family in Dallas. So I do come down to the DFW area pretty frequently. I can tell you this though, DFW is my favorite business metroplex, okay? It's a fantastic place for business, okay? much more so than most places in the United States. And I love coming there because, you know, there's a can-do spirit, uh, not just to Texas, but to DFW, right? Mm -hmm. There's a can-do spirit. It's growing. Things are happening. People are easy to, to get with, right? Uh, and people work hard. Okay? People work hard. They want to make connections. They want to meet. They want to build things. And I think it's a perfect place to work, okay? Uh, it's also the perfect place to live because I can tell you if it wasn't Miami, it would have been Dallas-Fort Worth. <laughs> the advantage of Fort Worth is it's, it's got so much opportunity. Okay? It's a fast-growing uh, city. It is becoming increasingly diverse. Okay? Uh, and uh, I think it's attracting more and more people because of the lifestyle. Okay? Uh, housing is affordable. Uh, the job market is growing. It's a good place to live. And I know that because I live there. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully uh, after this pandemic ends, we'll, uh, we'll get to see you here on campus again soon. But uh, I want to thank you again for taking all the time you, you took today. I know you're, you're busy ad advising all the numerous businesses in your new role and, and turning all those, uh, those companies that are looking for direction right now. Thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure, Rob. And thank you once again for asking me to do this. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Frog for Life podcast. If you or a friend or family member would like to get in touch with us to share your story, please contact us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at TCU Alumni. We look forward to sharing our next story of how TCU Alumni are changing the world.